Let's pray. Father, we come to you once more to ask for your help, for your grace, to strengthen us as we bring ourselves once more underneath your word to learn uh, what you have for us to hear this morning. Lord, we know that your word is a sufficient word, and you have for us in it everything we need for life and godliness and to flourish in a world that feels at least increasingly hostile uh, to those who would stand up uh, and be faithful witnesses of Christ. And so we ask, Lord, that you would help us from this text to glean uh, strengthening truths uh, to be your faithful disciples in this world. And we ask, Lord, that you would do this for your name's sake. Amen. Well, I invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of Mark. We're finally back in Mark this morning. As most of you know, we stepped away from our study of Mark's Gospel for a few weeks because we wanted to spend some time thinking about spiritual health from a very practical standpoint. And we did that from 2 Timothy 2. And you could say that the focus of that study was on spiritual health, really on the health of our church from the inside out. And that was on two levels, really, from the inside out on the level of your own individual walk with the Lord, your own personal godliness, but also from the inside out on the level of our church. You know, the church is more than a building. The church is made up of each individual member. And the spiritual vitality of each member either further strengthens the the body at large or it weakens the church. We are joined together as a body and the spiritual strength of one member has serious repercussions on another member. If your foot is hurting, uh, it has an effect, a strange effect on your functioning. Same is true with the church. The body... Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians 12, is only as strong as its weakest member. So our individual priority is to be then the strongest member that we can be, with the Lord's help, of course. And that's for the sake of our church. And also, that is for the sake of our witness outside of Calvary, in the community, in Fort Worth, and around the world. So that's really kind of thinking from the inside out. We want to be strong individual Christians so that the church will be strong, so that going out, our witness will be adequate and faithful and represent what the Lord has done in our lives. But the importance of individual spiritual health is also heightened when we think from the perspective of the outside in. What I mean by that is that we exist in a culture, in a world, that seems to be putting increasing pressure on Christians. It seems that our current climate is more and more hostile to the truth claims of Christianity, and the pressures from the outside in continue to press in on the church. And we feel more and more, I would think, pressure to conform to the standards around us, to fall to the level of our culture's morality. Or at least to compromise on our end. Maybe not to fall 
to the full level of the, the world's morality, but at least to compromise, to sort of meet the world in the middle a little more and not to stand fast on the Word of God. And I think we understand that. I think we all feel the pressure from the world. I think we're aware of this intensifying opposition in our culture. And anyone who would stand on the absolute truth claims of the Bible and a biblical morality, well, they are no longer to be tolerated in our current climate. There was a time when the principles of Scripture shaped the larger contours of our culture and really the Western world at large. And we could at least feel like we sort of fit in. Right? Watch the Andy Griffith show. You sort of feel like, oh yeah, that's, that's nice. I could fit in there. But that reality is no more. And it wasn't real then either. But at least the perception of belonging on this planet is increasingly for us more and more clear that we do not belong here. In our culture, the concept of a biblical morality is not only laughable, that's a given, but it's also perceived, if you stand on biblical morality, it's also perceived as offensive and backwards right, and, and just hateful. In his new book, uh, Strange New World, Carl Truman captures this reality when he writes, The Western world in which we now live has a profoundly confusing and often disturbing quality to it. Things once regarded as obvious and unassailable virtues have in recent years been subject to vigorous criticism, and even in some cases to be seen by many as more akin to vices than virtues. Indeed, it can seem as if things that almost everybody believed as unquestioned orthodoxy just the day before yesterday, for example, that marriage is to be between one man and one woman, these things are now regarded as heresies advocated only by the dangerous lunatic fringe. Things which almost everybody believed as unquestioned orthodoxy just the day before yesterday are now questioned and they're regarded as heresies advocated only by the dangerous lunatic fringe. And he's not talking, of course, about theological heresy. He's talking about cultural heresy. And what we see, and more and more we see it, is pressure from our culture for everyone to toe the line of the new morality. I was just having a conversation last week about what do we do with pronouns? How do we handle pronouns? How do we, what do we say? How do we show love, but also not sort of buy into the delusion of other people? How do we stand on truth and do it so in a loving, gracious, kind way? What we've seen, though, is that our culture is not tolerant of anything except total conformity. Any dissent is not to be allowed. And because of this, when many of us sort of look forward into the coming years, it can lead many of us to think really discouraging thoughts. We can look ahead and we think, well, if the past 15 years of the cultural sexual revolution... If that has happened so quickly, 
what's going to happen in the next 15 years? Where are we going to be when the next decade rolls by? Where are we going to find ourselves? And I think certainly we should anticipate that unless God intervenes, we should uh, anticipate increasing darkness in our culture, increasing perversion celebrated as ordinary lifestyle choices, and increasing hostility to anyone who would stand against the sexual, moral revolution that's happening before our eyes. In short, we ought to be ready, I think, as Christians, for more and more opposition from the outside. And that's just a basic Christian reality. Serious opposition, physical opposition, ideological opposition. That, though, is nothing new in the grand scheme of Christianity. Although, I think for you and I, I think we tend to, as 21st century Christians, we can be a little bit myopic or nearsighted. And we forget that we exist in a very larger narrative of church history. And God has been sovereign over each saga, and He's still on His throne, and He's still faithful, and our job description is still the same. So, the reality of church history has been one marked by serious opposition, serious pushback against Christ and against His church. And what we find, though, is that when the world has pressed on the church the hardest, that is when the church has flourished the most. The blood of the martyrs is seed. You try to stop Christ. You try to slow down, restrict the growth of Christ's church. You work against yourself. Uh, You will actually compound the excellency of the church when you press in on it. The church when it's under pressure, is sort of like the Lord is refining His body. And so what you and I are facing today, and what our children and grandchildren will face tomorrow, is not something necessarily to be dreaded and feared. You hear this sometimes, I just worry about the children. But that's not the mentality we need to have. In fact, if we look at the history of the church, it's times like this when the church has shown the brightest. It's in the darkest of times when the church shines out the brightest. And I think, as perhaps never before in the history of our country, what we have as Christians today in our current cultural climate is an opportunity to shine out like, like perhaps never before. It's not a time to be fearful. It's not a time to worry. It's a time for us to rise up And to, as the hymn says, put our armor on and hear the call of Christ, our captain. To gird ourselves up with kindness and an unyielding commitment to the truth. And to understand that God has brought us all here as a church in this particular time, really for, as Esther put it, for such a time as this. We are here by God's decree to do the Lord's work. Work And our job, in short, is to make Jesus more and more famous. That's why we're here. That's why God hasn't pulled you off the earth yet. Uh, you, you have work to do. And your personal godliness and your external shining out in the culture, all of that is tied in together. If you are going to live in the coming years, and I hope that you do, Uh, with faithfulness, and shine out as the Lord would have you to shine out, 
you need to be emboldened by the reality that the church has always existed in a state of opposition. It was Calvin, John Calvin's successor, Theodore Beza, uh, who said that the church is an anvil that has worn out many hammers. The church is an anvil that has worn out many hammers. And so the culture wails and wails and wails on the church and tries to get you and I to conform and lower our standards. But if we are faithful, our culture will just be one more hammer that gets worn down. And that's the objective. We want to be the Lord's kind of people in the midst of a dark culture. And the reality is that century after century, opponents of the Lord Jesus have pounded away in an effort, in a sort of Psalm 2 way, to dethrone him. Yet despite centuries of opposition, the fame of Jesus continues to advance in the world through the likes of you and I. And that's what we're here to do. And this passage in Mark chapter 3 really dovetails with what we looked at in 2 Timothy 2 in that way. That it gives us a clear reminder of what we are to be doing and it sort of injects us with the hope that despite opposition, the Lord's fame will continue to advance. And so I invite you to turn with me to Mark 3 after that long introduction. And I want to read with you verses 7 to 12. So stand with me and we'll read Mark chapter 3, verses 7 to 12. And what Mark is doing here is underscoring the reality that Jesus' fame continues to spread throughout all the world despite opposition. Beginning in verse 7, Jesus withdrew to the sea with his disciples. And a great multitude from Galilee followed, and also from Judea. And from Jerusalem and from Idumea and beyond the Jordan, in the vicinity of Tyre and Sidon, a great number of people heard of all that he was doing and came to him. Verse 9, and he told his disciples that a boat should stand ready for him because of the crowd, so that they would not crowd him. For he had healed many, with the result that all those who had afflictions pressed around him in order to touch him. Whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they would fall down before him and shout, You are the Son of God. And he earnestly warned them not to tell who he was. You may be seated. So the principle that we see in this passage is that despite efforts by the scribes and the Pharisees, the pressure, the, the, the hammer wailing on the anvil of Jesus Christ, despite their efforts, Jesus could not be contained. His fame, his popularity continued to extend. And what I want to do with you this morning is just walk through this passage verse by verse and show you really two locations in which the fame of Jesus advanced. The first, you see that in your outline, is among men, among men. You could call that a horizontal extension of Jesus' fame. The second is among demons. Now, I I get that that sounds a little weird, uh, but I hope you'll see what I'm talking about as we get in the text. But we could call that a vertical extension, for lack of a better phrase, 
uh, it's an extension horizontally among men, but also uh, vertically in the sense of it's extending into the supernatural realm. And, and like I said, you'll see that, Lord willing, as we get to verse 11 and 12. So let's look first then at the fame of Jesus among men. The beginning of verse 7 sort of sets up the context for us. It says, Jesus withdrew to the sea with his disciples. Now, this is something I would say like a tactical retreat on Jesus' part. It's a tactical retreat from the Pharisees. And I say that because the word withdraw is used in the Gospels, especially in Matthew's Gospel. It's only used once. It's the only place that occurs in Mark's Gospel. But it's used most frequently to describe Jesus' behavior following some sort of opposition or physical danger. Physical danger comes, you see this Matthew 4, 12, 14, 15. When physical danger, opposition comes, Jesus would interact and then he would withdraw. But what we've seen as we've worked through Mark is that leading up to verse 7 is an increasing amount of pressure and opposition to Jesus that goes back really to the beginning of chapter 2. Chapter 2 down to chapter 3, verse 6 is one section where we see the Pharisees increasingly opposed to our Lord. It starts uh, back in chapter 2, verse 6, with the scribes merely reasoning in their hearts against Jesus. And then, in verse 16, they go a little further, and this time they go after his disciples to oppose them. Then in verse 24, they're finally worked up enough courage to go to the man himself, and they object to what Jesus has been doing. And really, actually, it's what he's allowing his disciples to do there. And then finally, it culminates in verse 6 of chapter 3, where they've had enough, and they start to scheme uh, with the Herodians, who are the political power players of the day. They start to scheme with them how they might crush the anvil. How are they going to get rid of this man? What can we do to destroy him? It's interesting that Luke, in his parallel account, makes it clear that the Pharisees, he says, were, quote, filled with rage against Jesus. It really makes me think of Psalm 2. The nation's rage. If you're interested, you should read Psalm 2 and look at how the Pharisees interact with the Lord's anointed, his Messiah. Is striking. The nations rage against him. And here, the Pharisees are raging against the Lord's anointed. And then Matthew tells us that Jesus knew exactly what they were doing in his account. They, he knew that they were raging and they were conspiring to destroy him. And so in verse 7, he calls his disciples away. It says to the sea. Well, the, the challenge there is that they're already at the sea. They're in Capernaum. Now, Capernaum is, is on the, the west side of the Sea of Galilee. And so probably what he means here is over to the northeast side that would have been a little more isolated. So he gets his disciples away from the opposition. So then the question is, who are these disciples? We're, we're early. The apostles haven't been called yet or appointed yet. And so who are they? We're not told explicitly exactly who they are, but we know that they're distinguished between the crowds who are going to come up. So there's a distinguishing between the crowds and these disciples. The word disciple simply means a learner. You know that. It means a learner. 
I'm going a little further. It's a learner who is consistently associated with someone who has a reputation as a teacher. Now that's important because we're, gonna, we're trying to deduce, try to figure out, okay, who are these disciples? So if you take this basic definition, we can reason backwards from that, that these disciples were followers of Jesus who had a little more interest in following him because of his theology, his teaching of his worldview. They had an interest in Jesus at a deeper level than these huge crowns that we're going to look at in just a minute. They had an interest in Jesus at the level of worldview and teaching. They wanted to know, what does he have to say? Not simply uh, to get their appetite uh, satisfied, right? They weren't just getting food. They weren't just wanting healing. They were wanting to know, who is this man? And what does he have to say? There are a couple of other things we know about the group. We know from chapter 1, verses 16 to 20, that there were four men who were in this group of disciples, Simon, Andrew, James, and John. They were part of this group of disciples. And we also know from chapter 2 that Levi, or Matthew, was now part of the group of disciples. And if we cross-reference where we are in the Gospel of Mark with the Gospel of John, we find out that Jesus at this point had also called Philip and Nathaniel. Alright, so if my math is right, which is, I'm, this is not my area of expertise, that's seven. Uh, seven disciples at this point who are with Jesus, called away uh, to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Now that's just the seven that we know of. They're eventually, in verses 13 to 19, are called out of that group. Right? So there's a larger group of disciples from which the future apostles will be called. And so, possibly Jesus is pulling them away as a tactical retreat, essentially getting away so that they can figure out what in the world is happening with these Pharisees. What are they doing? What is going on with them? And likely Jesus is going to bring them over. It's going to be quiet. They're going to be able to sit down and rehearse What has happened? What have they seen? And Jesus would give them a commentary on that. But, notice the rest of verse 7. Just as they thought they were going to get a break, as they go out to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, verse 7 says, A great multitude from Galilee followed, and also from Judea, and from Jerusalem, and from Idumea, and beyond the Jordan, and the vicinity of Tyre and Sidon. A great number of people heard of all that he was doing and came to him. It's really quite an image. Uh, if those of you who have kids, I think you'll get this image pretty well. Uh, you know, you, it's kind of like you try to get away from your kids just for a little while. You love your children. They're great gifts, but you just want some quiet. You want to get away. So you go sneak in your room, and you think, okay, now it's quiet. And then all of a sudden, you know, you're praying or something. You look up, and you, you, know, you can feel these eyes looking at you. And you look up, and how did they get in here? Right? How are they here? And that's kind of the image I get here. Is there, you know, it's like, okay, let's get away from here. And they look behind them, and this sea of people, thousands of people, are coming up to them, and, and we're going to see where they come from. Uh, the disciples thought uh, we could get some alone time with Jesus, but that is interrupted. And all of a sudden, this massive crowd descends on Jesus and his disciples. And really, that is the emphasis here. Uh, If you look at verse 7 and 8, the phrase, a a great multitude, 
is actually repeated twice. Uh, It's the same phrase in Greek, but it comes into English, at least in the NASB, in two different, and the LSB, in two different translations. The ESV actually is consistent here, and it translates it as um, a great crowd. If you got the ESV, you see that. Verse 7, it's a great crowd. Verse 8, it's a great crowd. And this is kind of bookending the description of where these people are coming from. Right? It's this massive crowd of people that are coming to see Jesus. A swarm of people coming from all over the place. Where do they come from? First place, Galilee. That's not surprising since most of Jesus' ministry up to this point has been in and around Galilee. Mark has already emphasized how the news about Jesus was spreading everywhere into all the surrounding district of Galilee. That was chapter 1, verse 28. And then, in chapter 1, and verse 32, he says that at one point, you remember, when Jesus is at Peter's house, the whole city comes to see him. That's in Capernaum. And then, finally, in verse 45 of chapter 1, we get this. The fame of Jesus had effectively spread, verse 45, to such an extent that Jesus could no longer publicly enter a city. But he stayed out in unpopulated areas, and they were coming to him from everywhere. And all of that was happening despite the antagonism of the religious leaders. They could not stop him Despite their opposition, the people just sort of keep flooding in to hear Jesus. You can imagine the frustration on the Pharisees and the scribes. So they were coming from Galilee, but it went outside of Galilee as well. The fame of Jesus spread down into the southern half of Israel, which was called Judea. Northern half is Galilee, the southern half is Judea. And then in verse 8, it spread to the capital of Israel into Jerusalem, to the heart of Jewish religion. It's the home of the priesthood, the temple. All of Israel's religious history sort of orbited around Jerusalem. And apparently, there were people there not getting what they needed in Jerusalem from the priests, from uh, the Jewish religion. And so they traveled 80 miles from Jerusalem up to Capernaum, 80 miles just to see Jesus. Now, that's going to be important in just a minute when we start talking about what they're doing. That's a long way. They have some skin in the game here. And then Mark tells us they came from Idumea. Now that's way south. That's south of Judea, about 120 miles from Capernaum, which would have been about a six days journey to get to Jesus. Tuck that in your mind, and you'll see this playing out in its importance in a few minutes. The Idumean people were descendants of Esau, They had been forced to convert to Judaism about 100 years before uh, Jesus was born. And so the Jewish people viewed the Idumeans sort of like they viewed the Samaritans. That they were not really Jewish, uh, but they didn't view them as bad as they... They didn't think they were as bad as the the Samaritans. They were bad because they had been forced to become Jews, uh, which incidentally is the only time in Jewish history where that happened, where the Jewish people forced another country, another group of people to become Jewish. So the the Jewish people would have looked at the Idumeans sort of with a little bit of suspicion. However, they came a long way to see Jesus, 120 miles, six days walk. Where would you walk to six days? So they came from Idumea, but they also came, the text says, from beyond the Jordan, according to verse 8. 
Literally, that's on the other side of the Jordan. So east of Galilee and Judea, places like Decapolis, which was uh, essentially Gentile, all basically Gentile in Decapolis, and then in Perea, which would have been home to a large Jewish population. Now, all of these details are not random, trivial facts, okay? So hang with me. And then in the middle of verse 8, we're told that the people were also coming from Tyre and Sidon. That's just north of Galilee, immediately north of Galilee on the Mediterranean coast. These were Gentiles, uh, Gentile cities, Phoenician cities, and they would have been considered utterly pagan from the Jewish perspective. Okay, so now why does Mark give us all of these locations? What's he doing here? You believe in verbal plenary inspiration, right? Every word comes to us as a result of God's sovereign inspiration. It's the word of God. So why give us all of these details? Well, there's a number of theories, but I think what Mark is simply doing is he's trying to demonstrate the sheer impact of the ministry of Jesus Christ, particularly the fame of Jesus as is extended beyond the borders of Galilee. You get the impression in the first few chapters of Mark that Jesus just sort of lives in Galilee, hangs out in Galilee. Every, this is like a rural ministry that Jesus has. That is not true. And Mark sort of corrects that. I, I'm speaking humanly there. Mark says, no, that went, his ministry influence went far beyond Galilee. And it went ethnically to what would be considered some pretty strange places. Right? It went to Tyre and Sidon. It went to the Decapolis region. Which were, you know, that was almost exclusively Gentile, Tyre and Sidon, Phoenicians. It went to the Idumeans. What is happening here? Well, I think it's something like a foreshadowing of the gospel advance throughout the world. This is just a microcosm of what's coming. Right? This is the very initial phases of the ministry of Jesus Christ. And what's going on here is that the ministry, the fame, the gospel of Jesus Christ. It can't be contained within ethnic or nationalistic borders. And we know that. And Matthew makes this point in his account when he cites the, this passage, this reality as the fulfillment of Isaiah 42, 1-4, which says that the Messiah would declare justice to the Gentiles and that in his name, Gentiles would trust so there's something of just this initial foreshadowing of the Great Commission that's right here in this passage. The Jews were coming to Him, Gentiles are coming to Him, and the glory of Jesus is exceeding all ethnic, nationalistic boundaries and is, as, and is enveloping every tribe, every nation, and tongue, at least trajectory-wise. And in this very moment... Despite the religious leaders' efforts to slow the spread, the nations are descending on Jesus like the plague. And they're coming from all over the place. Now the question is, what is Jesus going to do? <laughs> I know what I would do. Just, I just need a break. All right, just give me 10 minutes. I even sometimes say that. Just give me 10 minutes, Dad will come out and play. It's going to be good. Uh, I just need a minute. But look what Jesus does. Verse 9, And he told his disciples that a boat should stand ready for him because of the crowd, so that, he would not, so that they rather would not crowd him. It's an interesting response. The crowds are coming. Get the boats ready. 
We're going to get out of here. We're going to zoom across the Sea of Galilee, and we'll have some peace finally. Not, not at all, actually. That's not what he's doing. Uh, he's not leaving them, you know, like a celebrity fleeing paparazzi. That's not what he's doing. Jesus is intentional. Every step he took on this earth was purposeful and intentional. And what he's doing right now is not fleeing the crowds. Actually, he's preserving his life until the proper time. Right, now is not his time to go out. And if he didn't do this, the crowds would have crushed him. Let me show you what I mean. We often, rather, we often think about Jesus' ministry to the clouds, right? You think flannel graph and Jesus on the hillside and it's peaceful, butterflies are around, everyone's serenely coming up to Jesus to learn from Jesus. That's often what we have in our minds. It would have been wonderful to be there. It really would have been, but that's not the scene that we get here. These people are actually descending on Jesus like a mob. This is not serene, peaceful, easing in just to hear Jesus. These people wanted what they wanted, and they were actually willing to crush Jesus and everyone around them just to get it. That's what the word, if you look at verse 9, get the boat ready. Why? Why? Verse 9. Because of the crowd. So that they would not crowd him. Let's repeat it. It's the word flibo, which you've probably heard the word flipsis, which is like pressure. It means to compress or crush. We get a little better picture of what's going on when you look at verse 10. For, so get the boat ready because of the crowd so they don't crowd me. For, he had healed many with the result that all those who had afflictions pressed around him in order to touch him. Thousands of people just wanting to touch Jesus. Trying to get their hands on Him. And that was their primary concern. That's what verse 10 is telling us. So, they had traveled from all over the place, some of them 120 miles, six days journey, I came here to touch Jesus, and I'm going to touch Jesus. Right? And you press in, and what happens is you have people literally falling upon him, which is what the word pressed around translates to. It's literally falling upon him. People with afflictions would fall upon him. They're diving essentially to touch him, just to get to him. It's really a negative picture, right? Sickness would fall upon you. Storms would fall upon you as you're out on your journey. Diseases, other accidents, negative things would fall upon you. And that's the way the word is typically used, to convey something negative. And that's what we see here. These folks have one thing in mind. I need to get my outer man taken care of, and I'm willing to touch, do anything so that I can touch this man. They're urgent. They're reckless. They're heedless. They're thoughtless as they press in just to get near enough to touch Jesus. So we don't need to think peaceful meadow butterflies. We need to think mob, essentially, utterly desperate, with skin in the game. I've traveled six days to get here. I'm going to touch this man. Thousands of people thinking the same thing, which is why they say, Jesus says, rather, get the boat ready. Because I know what they want. 
Right? I know what you want, you disciples that are here with me. I know you want the word, and I'm here to help you get that. You've got some misplaced expectations. And I'm going to get that fixed as well. That's what you want. But I know what these people want as well, and I love them, and I have compassion on them, and they think they need their outer man fixed. But I'm going to give them what they really need. So get the boat ready. It's exactly what we see in chapter 4, verse 1. If you flip over there, we see a similar scenario where Jesus, another crowd, descends on him, and he began to teach by the sea. And such a large crowd gathered to him that he got into a boat in the sea and fled. No. He got into the boat in the sea and sat down, and the whole crowd was by the sea on the land, and he was doing what? Verse 2, teaching them. This is what he's doing. This is what is happening in verse 10. The crowds are thinking strictly in terms of the outer man. They want physical healing, but Jesus, of course, has a deeper priority. We saw that in Mark 1, verse 38, where Jesus said he hadn't come to do all these wonderful miracles, to heal everyone. Verse, chapter 1 and verse 38 tells us that Jesus came to preach the word. Let us go to other towns also so that I may preach there, for that is why I came out. Miracles, healings, supernatural work, all of this was happening to authenticate the gospel message from our Lord. So he came to preach, the people came to be healed, and Jesus said, I'm going to stick with my priority and I'm going to preach the word to this crowd. So get the boat ready and I'll extend myself out a little bit into the sea so that I can teach, my voice will project, and they can hear the most important truth of their lives. Now, there is certainly a ministry lesson there. Okay? Literally thousands of people coming to you, demanding that you, you sort of modify your ministry and reprioritize things so you can take care of them for a moment. And Jesus doesn't bow to that kind of pressure. Jesus knows the reason for which he came. And so, he sticks to his mission in spite of external pressure. In the same way, we experience pressure to modify our priorities. Jesus had two priorities, prayer and proclamation. And he stuck to them, regardless of the pressure. In the same way, the church must prioritize the proclamation of the word, and you must prioritize the proclamation of the word in your life, in your personal uh, training for godliness. Now, that's just a sort of corollary application. The main emphasis here, though, is despite the opposition from the Pharisees, the fame of Jesus advances uncontrollably throughout Galilee, down to Jerusalem and Judea, across the Jordan, into the beginnings uh, at least trajectory-wise, the uttermost parts of the world. And that's the horizontal expansion of Jesus' fame. The gospel continues to march on even today as Jesus continues to be proclaimed through you and I. And even as cultural opposition rises, we still preach an invincible Christ. And just like the Pharisees and the scribes could not... Could not slow down the advancement of Christ's glory and His fame, so too cultural pressures, cultural influences, cultural demands cannot retard the growth and advancement of the fame of Jesus Christ. 
That's the horizontal expansion. You and I are employed in the horizontal expansion of the fame of Jesus Christ. That's why you exist. You exist for the proclamation of the glory of Jesus Christ. Everything you do, everything you say, ought to flow out of that singular reality. But then, moving on, Mark 3, we come to verse 11. And there we see what we, for lack of a better phrase, are calling the vertical expansion of Jesus' fame. And by that, I mean the expansion of Jesus, his fame, rather, throughout the spiritual realm. Now, all the way back, if you remember back in chapter 1, in verse 13, we saw that Jesus' ministry was not restricted to the horizontal, to the physical world. In chapter 1 and verse 13, you remember that Jesus was driven into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit and was there in the wilderness, tempted by Satan for 40 days. That was just the beginning of an ongoing battle between Jesus and the devil. And Luke tells us that when the devil sort of retreated from this attack on Jesus, he did so until an opportune time. The idea is, it's not over, Jesus. This is not it. And so what we see, beginning in chapter 1, verse 13, is this persistent attempt by Satan to discredit and derail the mission of Jesus Christ. We see this throughout the Gospel of Mark. And side by side to this attempt to derail Jesus' mission, we see again and again that Jesus stands undeterred by Satan's efforts. Jesus' focus was singular. His mind was fixed on pleasing the Father. And he continued to accomplish his mission despite distractions that were thrown at him by the satanic world. We remember, and we see this over and over again, that throughout the Gospel of Mark, that the battle of Jesus extends or rises above the level of the earthly and goes up to this cosmic battle between God and Satan, good and evil, light and darkness. This is the realm in which Jesus operates. It's horizontal, but it has impact into the cosmic realm, the cosmos. We see throughout Mark's gospel skirmishes between Jesus and Satan, but at no point is there any question as to who holds absolute authority. Never. There's never any question about, oh, who's going to win this one? I mean, even in the temptation, you sort of read it and you think, what is he thinking? He thinks he can beat Jesus? This is not going to happen. And over and over again, you see throughout the Gospel of Mark, you see these skirmishes, but you see Jesus stand undeterred, unfazed, and actually continues to demonstrate his authority over uh, the demonic host. In fact, it's really, it's interesting. What you see over and over again is that Satan's demonic host, every time they encounter Jesus, they are forced, compelled to fall down and cry out and declare him to be the Lord, the Messiah. This is what we see in verse 11. Look with me. 
whenever, right, this is a, a sort of habitual overview summation of Jesus' ministry. Verse 11, whenever the unclean spirits, that was a Jewish way of describing uh, demonic forces, whenever these spirits saw Jesus or him, they would fall down before him and shout, you are the son of God. This is what they would do habitually. And we see that based on the verb tenses, the imperfect tense, and also the word choices that Mark employs here points to the fact that this is a, an ongoing, repeated behavior, an episode that would happen all the time. And we saw that really in chapter 1 when Jesus goes into the synagogue and you know the, the synagogue there, everything is peaceful and Jesus stands up to teach and all of a sudden there's a man in the synagogue, his eyes meet Jesus and all of a sudden he loses his mind. Right? He starts screaming and he starts crying out, you're the Holy One of Israel, you know, leave us alone essentially. He's panicking, and he's full of fear. And he says, have you come to destroy us? The demons know who Jesus is. And so when they see him repeatedly, according to Mark 11, they would fall at his feet, and they would cry out or shriek loudly in what I think can best be described as a panic. James 2.19, you remember, tells us that the demons have right theology, and what do they do because of that? They shudder. They know who he is. And the knowledge of him leads them to shudder. And they shudder in fear. And that's what's happening and what happened over and over again while Jesus walked to the earth. He would be walking, he would encounter a demon, which demonic power seemed to be sort of ramped up during this time. And they would see him, and they would cry out in a shriek, shrill fear, panic. And they would proclaim him to be who he really was. Right? The demon's right. And in fact, what's very interesting is, of all the people around, the demons are probably the only ones who actually get it right now. Right? The disciples, we know, they don't quite get it yet. They're getting it. They're on the right trajectory. The Pharisees, of course, they definitely don't get it. But the demons seem to have it right. And, and, and them initially sort of falling down and, and panically, fear, you know, fearfully shrieking, it seems like that, that's pretty good. Right? That would be good for Jesus' fame and popularity. Right? All these spiritual demonic powers bowing to Jesus and declaring him to be who he really is. But the problem, of course, is that you don't want the devil going around around canvassing for you. You don't want the devil getting people on board with your cause. You don't want Hitler on your team in that regard. Right? You don't want that kind of representation. And so, it's just sort of common sense here that Jesus would tell them to be quiet. You're right, but stop. So verse 12, he earnestly warned them not to tell who he was. It's interesting. Literally, it's, it's not to make him known. Don't make me known. <laughs> right, I don't want you to do this. You are not the ones to make me known. ESV says he strictly ordered them not to make him known. It was a command with a warning. NAS says warning. ESV says command. 
The idea there is a command with a stern threat. And they knew. They knew who he was. And so they obeyed him. He didn't need them to make him known. He had different mechanisms for that, didn't he? He had much different mechanisms than the demonic host to go around and make him famous. And we already see this is happening. And we see in verse 8, if you look back at verse 8, the great crowds were coming to him, not because the demons were proclaiming his excellencies, but because they had heard of all that he was doing. It was the ministry, the works of Jesus Christ that were attractive and pushed Jesus' fame to greater and greater heights. He didn't need the demons to declare his excellencies. We also know that Jesus' theology, his teaching, his teaching ministry, his blameless life coupled with that, which is where power is, right? It's one thing to be a great teacher, but if you couple that with a blameless life, that's called integrity, and that has significant pull on people. Now, Jesus, of course, was the Son of God in flesh, so there was pull there, right? But just thinking practically for your own sake, you want to be the kind of person who declares the excellencies of Christ, but also matches that declaration with a, a blameless life, right? A life that sort of measures up to the gospel you preach. That doesn't mean perfect, perfection. That means when you sin against people, what would a blameless, Christ-like person do? They would go to that person and say, will you please forgive me? I sinned against you. Um, you, know, you. You make amends. I'm not talking about perfection. I'm talking about a life of integrity. Right? Integrity is one. Right? Where your life and your theology, your life and your proclamation match. And what we see in Jesus is this in its ultimate sense. Never has anyone walked the earth and their life and their theology perfectly coalesced. It did in Jesus. It did in Jesus. And in fact, what we see even at the end of Mark, in a, in a really interesting turn, is that Mark fifteen thirty nine, when Jesus is hanging on the cross, even the way he's dying demonstrates something about his identity. Mark fifteen thirty nine, he's on the cross, and the centurion, you remember, when he looks upon, he's probably the one who's in charge of Jesus' crucifixion. He had a hundred soldiers underneath him, so he's probably overseeing the crucifixion. When he looks upon Jesus and sees him dying, he hears him cry out, he said, truly this man was the Son of God. Same confession the demons were making. But this time, it's from a credible witness. This centurion, a tradition says, this centurion actually repented and believed the gospel. But he saw in Jesus someone whose life matched his profession. It's incredibly powerful. Now, let me bring all this to an application, to a close. It's clear that the fame of Jesus is what this passage is about. It couldn't be stopped. It advances horizontally among men. It advances vertically among demonic powers, so much so that they're repeatedly falling on their knees and declaring who this man is. They know him. And the people know him. Now the question before us is, how is he going to continually be made known today? How is Jesus' fame advancing today? 
Well, we see, at least in Mark 15, 39, it advanced through this soldier who looked at Jesus and he saw in Jesus a man whose profession matched his uh, life. And he saw in Jesus uh, that he was truly the Son of God and the Messiah. The question asked in another way is, if Jesus' mechanism for advancing the gospel was not demonic powers who lacked integrity, what is his mechanism for today? And of course, you all know that. The mechanism for gospel advance today is faithful disciples like you and I. This is why internal holiness is so crucial. The, the demons had no integrity. They had no integrity. They, they, there was nothing internally that matched what they were saying with their words. This is why internal holiness is to be your priority. That's why godliness ought to be uh, your target. Every day of your life, you're seeking to walk more faithfully to the Lord because you want your life to dovetail with the truth you proclaim, the gospel, the wonderful gospel of God's forgiving grace to sinners like you and I. And you, of course, want to be, I think, and I want to be the most faithful witnesses that we can be. Your very life ought to declare the excellencies of Christ and be the agent through which the fame of Jesus continues to advance. Now, the point of all of this this morning is simply to say that despite the opposition that Jesus encountered, the gospel continued to go out. And that is our model. Jesus was opposed. You will be opposed. We are opposed. We live in a dark culture, and the pressure is on. But that is the way it's always been. Jesus was hated. Jesus was despised and rejected. Jesus was the anvil that was pounded on again and again and again. Yet, the gospel, the fame of Jesus continued to spread, and it continues to spread through this day. The gates of hell were not able to prevail against it. Now, sometimes, fast forward to the 21st century, sometimes it looks as if the gates of hell might prevail against the church. And sometimes it looks as if the mission of Jesus might be derailed. But then, if you think about it, often what looks like as the darkest time, the greatest moment of defeat historically, has been demonstrated to be the greatest victory of the church. Now, the greatest example of that? The resurrection. It's over. We got him. The anvil's crushed. We accomplished the mission we set out to in Mark 3, verse 6. We did it. We destroyed him. It's over. And then, all of a sudden, this man rises up out of the grave. And what looks like total defeat is extraordinary victory. And in the face of that, you have to imagine the disciples, they go to the tomb, it's over, we were wrong, we misunderstood, we thought he might have been saying he was the Messiah, I don't, I don't know what was going on, but now he's dead. And then all of a sudden, he's risen from the dead, and they are filled with courage. Why? Well, because theologically they understand that this is the one whom God sent to save sinners like them. 
Right? So that fills you with courage, emboldens you, takes care of your sin problem. Now you're free to live for the Lord. But they also knew that even despite the opposition of Rome, that this was a man they could follow. Jesus Christ was invincible, and his mission would not fail. And so as they then advance, many times it looked like defeat for them, right? It looks like the opposition would win the day, but they were able to pass the baton on. And century after century after century, the baton has been passed, and here we are today. Fully justified, celebrating the fame, the glory, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that no opposition can ever deter the church from accomplishing its mission. In times of the greatest opposition, the church has stood defiantly against demonic powers and worldly powers and continued to advance the gospel again and again. And I'll tell you, something that thrills me, just the thought of this thrills me, that we are in this time of increasing darkness that looks very hopeless. But these are the times when God demonstrates his power in the most extraordinary ways. These are opportunities. This is not something to fear. This is not something to be afraid of for our children, even. We are raising them up to be salt and light in this world. And they're going to have an opportunity to shine out for the Lord and continue the advance of the gospel in this culture in ways that maybe you and I will never have. So we continue to train them. We continue to be full of hope as we labor for the Lord here. And as we realize opposition is strengthening, we say, hey, we were made for such a time as this. This is our time to shine and be faithful. We want to do it with integrity. We want to be witnesses of the Lord, not like the demons. We want to be witnesses whose, whose lives match the profession they make. May the Lord help us to do that. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. And Lord, we thank you that even in spite of the opposition from religious leaders, from the Pharisees, from scribes, and from the demonic hosts, the gospel prevailed and Jesus' fame continued to advance. And Lord, we thank you that despite centuries of opposition, the church continues to stand and flourish. We thank you for the promise of your word that although the gates of hell storm against the church, they will not prevail. And Lord, we ask that you would help us in this season where we feel increasing opposition, increasing confusion about what do we say, how do we say it, but fill us with courage. May we be your faithful representatives on the earth, and may we follow our Lord just as he persisted through opposition. May we do the same. And Lord, would you fill us with courage, fill us with your grace, so that we can be your kinds of people. And Lord, we pray this for your namesake, and we pray it in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.